Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Dead Celebrity Podcast. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their very core basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. My guest today is Bruce Dabosky. For more than 40 years, Bruce has been dedicated to community building and social change through his professional and volunteer work. He founded the Dabosky Group in 2010 to help individuals, families, businesses, and foundations organize, strategize, evaluate, and maximize the impact of their philanthropic initiatives. Bruce writes a regular syndicated column called On Philanthropy, which is published in the Sunday Denver Post business section and distributed to over 600 newspapers and other news outlets around the U.S. and beyond including a little site called wealthmanagement.com. Thanks for joining us, Bruce. Happy to be here. So the topic of today's episode is one of the legends of Hollywood's golden age, Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, Taylor, who became a movie star while still in her teens, lived basically her entire life in the spotlight. She was the first actress to crack the $1 million salary barrier for 1963's Cleopatra. And she won a pair of Best Actress Oscars for her performances in Butterfield 8 and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Of course, any discussion of Taylor's life would be incomplete without any mention of her count them eight marriages, two of which were to fellow star Richard Burton, because I guess sometimes you just really have to make sure. And while this aspect of her life in particular is rife with estate planning lesson possibilities, it's not what we're going to talk about today. Instead, as you may have guessed from Bruce's bio or, you know, the title of the episode, we're going to focus on her philanthropy. Taylor began her large-scale philanthropic efforts in 1984, by helping to organize and hosting the first AIDS fundraiser to benefits the AIDS Project Los Angeles. In August of 85, she and Dr. Michael Gottlieb founded the National AIDS Research Foundation after her friend and former co-star Rock Hudson announced that he was dying of the disease. The following month, the foundation merged with Dr. Matilda Krim's AIDS Foundation to form the American Foundation for AIDS Research, which is probably better known as AMFAR. Since AMFAR's focus is on research funding, Taylor then founded the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, which is ETAF, in 1991 to raise awareness and provide support services with people, for people with HIV and AIDS. Taylor also founded the Elizabeth Taylor Medical Center to offer free HIV AIDS testing and care at the Whitman Walker Clinic in Washington, D.C., and the Elizabeth Taylor Endowment Fund for the UCLA Clinical AIDS Research and Education Center in Los Angeles. Taylor was honored with several awards for her philanthropic work. She was made a Knight of the French Legion of Honor, 
received the John Hershoft Humanitarian Award, the Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award for Humanitarian Service, the GLAAD Vanguard Award, and the Presidential Citizens Medal, just to name a few. Since her death of congestive heart failure in 2011, her estate has continued to fund the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation's work and donates 25% of royalties from the use of her image and likeness to the foundation. President Bill Clinton said at her death, Elizabeth's legacy will live on in many people around the world whose lives will be longer and better because of her work and the ongoing efforts of those she inspired. So Elizabeth Taylor's philanthropy existed on a scale commensurate with her fame. However, one need not be a huge movie star to embrace and benefit from philanthropy and the legacy it can create. So Bruce, what role can philanthropy play in a more typical client's plans? There's, there's so many important roles that I see philanthropy playing in, in people's lives. I'll start at the, at the 35,000 foot level. And that is that, that what I've seen is that the more that people make philanthropy, one of the cornerstones of their lives in the same sense of, uh, as, as one would think about love in a person's life, another cornerstone could be philanthropy. So the more that philanthropy is one of those cornerstones, the more that people routinely find the joy and the meaning and even the purpose of living. And what I think is exciting about philanthropy and the role that it plays in people's lives is, is one of the big lessons that I've learned in my last decade of working with families. Uh, When I started this work, I, I, I thought, David, the question I was going to help clients answer was the obvious one. And that is, um, what difference do I want to make in the world with my philanthropy? But in working with families and foundations, particularly, but also some businesses, uh, I've also learned that, the, that, that there's a second question, which is equally important as the one I just listed. And that is, what difference do I want to make for myself? See, this, is a great, this is a great point that I'm happy you brought up because I think uh, it, it's kind of, you know, you don't necessarily at first blush think of what can philanthropy do for me, right? You're sort of like, what can I do for others? But, you know, it is really a two-way street and, you know, ev- everyone can benefit. Exactly. I, at first, I was a little embarrassed even to ask that question, right? Because philanthropy is, is number one, outward facing, and number two, supposed to be altruistic. Well, People are not usually, you know, except maybe the Mother Teresas of the world, uh, purely altruistic. Uh, Most of us are trying to achieve some meaning or purpose or goal in our own lives by choosing to give away, to donate money that somebody worked really hard for that could be used to buy things or places or experiences, but instead are being chosen to give away. So one of the things that I see is that when people really look hard at the question, why am I giving this away? You know, what is it I'm hoping to uh, advance in my own life? It helps them do a better job of figuring out what they want to advance in the lives of others or the causes that they care about. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the first thing to talk about here, you're talking about making philanthropy a foundation of your life is kind of figuring out what that cause is, right? I mean, some people are blessed to know it from the beginning. I know because I'm married to what my wife has always known that LGBTQ issues are her issues that she cares deeply about. She wants to help that community. Um, but not every client is going to have that clarity. So, I mean, how do you get started 
in this conversation with a client who maybe hasn't thought too much about this or is a little confused? Well, um, the interesting thing is that a lot of people, most people, engage in what I call peanut butter giving. Peanut butter giving is when you spread uh, whatever amount of wealth that you choose to donate over a wide area thinly, just like um, uh, you would spread peanut butter on a piece of bread. And the problem with that is that that not only doesn't have much impact for the recipients, but it also doesn't have much impact for the donor. And it tends to make your philanthropy more transactional and not as transformational. (laughs) What I like and admire about Elizabeth Taylor is that she didn't appear to do that. She, she, She went deep into one area where she felt she could make the most difference. And in her case, it was fighting uh, HIV AIDS and helping people who were victims and researching for cures. Instead of spreading her philanthropy thinly over a wide area, that peanut butter giving concept, she went deep, not wide, and made a real, real difference and an impact. So when we work with clients who are really starting their philanthropic journey and don't know which direction they want to head, our first job is to help them figure out what it is they are indeed passionate about and where they feel they can make the most impact and have the greatest difference. Again, not only in the lives of the people they're trying to help or the causes they're trying to support, but also in their own lives. So we've developed a series of exercises and programs and challenges where we help people, whether it's a single person or a multi-generational family, we help them try to tease out those issues and causes that excite them and ignite their philanthropic passion. And then we try to weave together a mission statement that then can be a roadmap for their philanthropic journey that enables them not only to know what to say yes to, but also to know what to say no to. Because it's pretty hard out there. There's a lot of compelling causes. And there's a lot of things that people from Elizabeth Taylor's level of wealth to the ordinary that can be compelled to give to. But this idea of trying to narrow that focus where you can have the greatest impact uh, seems to work the best, not only for the causes, but also for the donors. I think it's great to point out here also that, you know, we just talked about Elizabeth Taylor who founded these multiple foundations and did all this like huge stuff. We're talking about going deep and making an impact. It's really in proportion with what you can realistically do. You can still gain a lot from making the most impact you can, which is the point here. It's not a, it's not a philanthropy contest. Um, It's giving what you can and making yourself feel good and making the difference that you can. Um, I like that you brought up this idea of the uh, mission statement. Because I think that neatly brings us to another aspect of the value of philanthropy, right? And that having it written down that way and having it really um, laid out makes it easier to sort of pass that value on and so that everyone's on the same page in a family. Right. And sometimes coming up with a mission statement in a multi-generational family is really challenging because the rising generations have had different life experiences than the typically the wealth-creating generations who are, who are usually the older generations. And so their interests and their passions and their values, although similarly aligned, might also be very different. And so it's exciting to work with families to find the, that common thread 
And there's almost always a common thread in a family, even if they're a widely disparate political or religious or other kind of views. And to try to find that common thread and then work around that in order to develop a mission statement is exciting for the participants. And frankly, I, I find it exciting as well because that then enables the mission statement to guide the family in their future efforts. I'm glad you brought up this idea sort of of working with the whole family and, and communicating. And obviously communication is sort of a major thread in all planning and estate planning. And, you know, we've talked about it on basically every episode of this podcast. But, um, you know, I can't say, and the amount of times I've seen personally and also heard stories of, you know, uh, parents who have successfully passed on their sort of their philanthropic legacy to their children. You know, they've, they've raised philanthropically inclined children. They're just not philanthropically inclined towards the same causes. And so they will, parents have set up a foundation or a donor advised fund or something like that, some sort of vehicle. And when they pass it on, they just assume that the children, because they know they've raised philanthropic children, are just going to jump in and take over. And that's not always the case. You know, they may be enthusiastic about philanthropy, but if it's not a cause they care about, you know, you see a lot of these things sort of go to pot, um, even though everyone has the best intentions and, and no one really means for that sort of thing to happen. Well, you've raised a really interesting point, David, and that is, is that people uh, of means, uh, of sufficient means to be considering philanthropy, um, spend a great deal of time developing their estate plan, right? And they they, they pay lawyers and they work with lawyers to develop this very uh, important part of their legacy, which is their estate plan. But if they want to pass more than their assets on to their heirs, then they need to do some philanthropic estate planning in their lifetime, not at their death. I, 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 I tell our clients all the time, give as much as you can afford while you live. And we actually guarantee our clients that it will be more meaningful and more fun to give while they live than to give when they're dead. And uh, so far, we haven't been proven wrong. And... Um, and so engaging with that rising generation, let's say you're in your 60s and your kids are in their 20s and 30s, or you're in their eight, your 80s and your kids are in their, their 40s and 50s, engaging together while you all can talk about what's important and then developing a mission statement that speaks to all generations increases the likelihood of those philanthropic values being passed down and increases the likelihood of that philanthropy going forward in a way which would make the older generation more comfortable than if all they did was leave a mission statement at death in which the rising generations weren't involved in creating and asking them to carry out their philanthropic journey or mission. It doesn't work because people are busy, they have their own passions, they have their own lives, and so that when mission statements are created, by the older or the wealth-creating generation and imposed upon the younger or the rising generation, it almost always fails to thrive. I like this idea also of, of casting your philanthropy as sort of a, a never-ending situation, sort of um, you know, by, by pushing it out to the, all the generations and involving everyone. It kind of it makes it that there's no end point, right? Because I think one of the difficulties um, when sort of working with clients and teasing out their philanthropy, you know, whether or not how philanthropic they want to be and whether what benefits that they can get is that it is actually 
one of those things where you, it's not like an investment where you can show like you made this much money uh, off of your investment. A philanthropy, you know, your benefits from a philanthropy are, are very ephemeral um, and they're very real, but it's very hard to, you can't really like put them on paper most of the time or write them down. And so, you know, the idea of a mission statement and this, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, likely the mission is not going to be complete within your lifetime, but having the idea that you, know, you, you get, keep working towards this mission that everyone in your family has been working towards forever and you know, are presumably going to continue working towards really casts your efforts in a more sort of beneficial light. And you can really feel, you know, without having to see that, you know, oh, this was solved, problem solved, check that box. We, you know, we, we did this philanthropy onto the next thing. It really makes it more of a, you know, you can get more benefit from it because you're not keeping score, if that makes sense. Exactly. We've developed mission statements across three generations, right? So the parents are in their 70s and 80s. The kids are in their 40s and 50s. Their kids are now young adults in their 20s and uh, maybe their 30s. And uh, all three generations have come together to find that common thread and to develop a mission statement that all can feel connected to, excited by, proud of, and passionate about. So now that we have this mission statement in place, without getting too much in the technical weeds, what's the next step? What can, where, where can you start? What are the vehicles that we can start with? In, in oh. terms of like teasing out this philanthropic and, and making it real, taking it from mission statement to actual doing. Well, part of part of, of of a family giving together is making sure that all the family members know the basics about how to be a good philanthropist, right? Typically, younger people who are focused on their schooling or the start of their careers and their families haven't had the time to really learn the best practices and the the the, the best ways to go about being being philanthropic. So we try to help those uh, to, to level the philanthropic table so that everybody at the table understands some of the same basic concepts about what makes a good philanthropist. And one of the things that makes a good philanthropist is research, right? How, once you have a mission statement, once you know where you want to go deep with your giving, um, then you have to figure out, well, who are the nonprofit partners out there who are doing the best work? and her doing it in the most cost-effective and powerful and impactful way that you want to become a partner with. And that's true whether you're giving them $500 or $1,000 a year or $500,000 or a million dollars a year. Um, the same principles apply. You want to find the best in class who are helping you advance your mission while they're advancing their mission. So there's a lot of ways to do that kind of research. Obviously, the Internet is where you can start. But, it, but you shouldn't stop there, right? In annual reports, you shouldn't stop. In glossy brochures, you shouldn't stop. Uh, you need to look at the, the tax returns, the 990s that are filed every year by the nonprofits to really understand how their money is being spent and what they're doing and how they're managing their nonprofit. And then you have to do a site visit. You have to go out and meet and greet and see and observe and maybe volunteer and participate in the work so that you can understand how people's lives or the causes that you care about are being impacted by the nonprofit. I've gone out and done uh, uh, site visits on now hundreds of nonprofits, and sometimes I'm just blown away by the effectiveness that I can see on the ground that isn't, doesn't even, can't even be conveyed through the website. And other times I'm blown away by how, in some ways, misrepresented I felt they were. When I got to the ground, it wasn't what it appeared to be. It didn't seem to be run in the same way. 
It didn't have that level of organization or effectiveness that we were seeking with our philanthropic investments. So you've got to go out and see the work. You've got to go out and touch the work and feel it and maybe even participate in it as all part of this research to really understand who are the best partners out there for you to work with to help advance your shared missions. I think also an overlooked factor here and something that you know, overlooked by clients, at least, and some of that advisors can really help by, by pointing out is that a lot of the things that make a good, quote unquote, good philanthropist are just the things that make a good businessman. And so a lot of times, you know, you have these families where, oh, I have a kid who I'm not sure if he's ready to take over. How do I get him ready? Do I give him a job in the business? For a lot of families, you know, the philanthropic efforts can kind of serve as the training ground to prepare the next generation to take on a leadership role in the family business. Um, because a lot of this research, a lot of this due diligence, and you know, you're, you're working with real money, that's your family's money, but it, you know, it's not gonna put the family under if you mess it up, but it is gonna really affect people. And so the, you know, the, you know, using the philanthropic efforts is kind of like the training wheels version of, of preparing the, the child to, to handle the business. Exactly. What's, what's fun about philanthropy is that that's money that the family has already chosen to give away may already be donated to a, a foundation or a donor advised fund, or may be ready to be given away to a charity. But it's money that the family has determined is beyond their needs and beyond their planning and can be used for philanthropy. And we urge families to, to view philanthropy as, as they view any other kind of investment. It just has a different kind of return. right? When you make an investment or you work with your financial advisor, you spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to maximize the return on that investment and how to diversify and allocate and prioritize those investments uh, so that you can uh, uh, ride the waves and, 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 and survive the hard times and do well. Well, in philanthropy, it's an investment, but it's, it's not a financial return you're seeking. It's a social return. And the same kind of due diligence, the same kind of planning, the same kind of strategic approach to your philanthropic that, that you use in your financial investments can be applied to your philanthropic investments, except it just has a different bottom line. It's a social return rather than a financial return. And what's interesting is that a lot of families we've worked with, say wealthy families who set up a foundation, the foundation is the first time that the rising generation, say young people in their 20s, get to take a look at, at, at financial matters and investment decisions and work with the financial planners and financial advisors to figure out how best to invest their philanthropic assets. And so it's a, it's a great training ground for future family leadership in financial management, uh, in communication, uh, in planning, uh, that families use um, as a stepping off place to help the, the young people grow into more responsible positions in the family. And just really quickly, we've, uh, we've used the terms foundation and donor advised fund here so far. Um, these are not the same thing. Uh, do you mind just quickly giving us the Cliff Notes version of what the difference is? Well, a private foundation is set up uh, through the IRS. It is itself a 501c3 um, and, um, you know, famous foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or, or the Ford Foundation, right? Those are, those are family foundations that are set up by the family. And they can be, you know, orders of magnitude smaller than the big ones that I just described. But they're separate legal institutions that then own the money that are directed by a board of directors 
and are um, are usually controlled by the family. But the money's off the balance sheet. It's in the in the balance sheet of the 501c3, the, the foundation. A donor advice fund is a separate entity. It's a public charity in and of itself. And the most famous ones are the ones that are owned by Fidelity Charitable or Schwab Charitable. Uh, but community foundations also have donor advice funds. And they you, you, you donate the money to your donor advice fund, and then you advise the public charity where you'd like those donations to go. And although the public charity is not legally obligated to um, uh, follow that advice, they nearly always do. And so it's another vehicle that has some advantages, both tax and planning and management advantages over a foundation, but also some disadvantages. And that's, there's too much detail there uh, to go into, I think, in this, in this forum. Uh, but there's a great deal uh, written out there, including by me, uh, about the difference between foundations and donor advice funds. They're the right solution for different people for different reasons at different times. If I know that that's a very big topic. I kind of just like threw at you at the end here, but I figured our no conversation would be complete with at least paying you know, lip service to, to what these things mean. Um, you know, this is obviously, you know, we're running out of time a little bit here, Bruce, but you're obviously so passionate about this topic. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot here at the end. Um, what's your number one recommendation? If I'm an advisor and I have a family that walks in and um, I get the inkling from talking to them that they may be philanthropically inclined, but they're not really coming out and saying it, what's the, like, the number one thing you recommend that I can do with that family and really to sort of like draw that out of them? I think that the philanthropic conversation that a financial advisor can have with a family is underestimated in terms of its importance, not only to the family, but also to the financial advisor, because it, 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 it really deepens and thickens the relationship in a meaningful way, because you're talking about things that matter beyond just money. You're talking about deeply held values. You're, you're talking about deeply held fears about the future of the world or about things that have happened to people in the past. Philanthropy is, is, is a very intimate conversation because it goes to the heart of the matter. Uh, philanthropy, the word comes from philos anthropos, the Greek term for love of humanity. And I think that when a financial advisor can have real conversations about love of humanity, it, it really extends their relationship to being a much greater steward of the family's assets than just managing their money. Um, so my number one advice w would be to have the conversation. And then the number two advice would be to get help because the, you can't be a master at everything. And there are people out there all over the country who are helping families ask and answer these questions on a deeper level that don't in any way change the ultimate mm -hmm. uh, relationship of the financial advisor or the estate planner with the client, but actually enhance that relationship. And because philanthropy is sophisticated, it is complex, it does have a difficult uh, return on investment to measure. Bringing in experts from community foundations, from private advisors, or from other sources who really understand the philanthropic landscape can deepen your relationship with your client and add tremendous values to their lives. Well, we're just about out of time now. I'd like to thank Bruce Dabosky for being just a fantastic guest. Thank you for joining us, Bruce. 
it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to continue the conversation uh, uh, with you at any time. I really enjoyed it. And uh, that's all the time we have for today. I uh, will see you guys, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing.